passage. I want to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm in second, so that won't help. Just have a few verses that I want to read to you. And then talk about them some. Beginning, beginning in uh, verse 9, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard 2020, says, For what thanks can we give to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice because of you before our God? As we keep praying most earnestly night and day that we may see your faces and may complete what is lacking in your faith. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at your word, as we consider the season of Advent. And, Lord, as we begin this new Christian year, Lord, that you would burn in our hearts uh, a sense of expectation of your coming, which is that which you have desired for your church throughout the church history. So, Lord, we pray that, that you would minister to us this morning, that you would help us to look for the light, the light of Jesus Christ, and to uh, patiently await his coming. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. It's an interesting letter because it's written to the church in Thessalonica, which I have a hard time saying, and I've got to really concentrate to try to get that to roll out of my mouth correctly. Um, but according to what we read in the book of Acts chapter 17, Paul was there for about three weeks. That was all he was there. And he taught in the synagogues, uh, and he had a number of people who uh, gave their lives to Christ. He, 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 uh, it says in Acts 17.3 that he explained and demonstrated that the Christ had to suffer and rise again, uh, and, and that the Christ that he's talking about is Jesus. And a lot of people received his teaching. They received the Lord. They became Christians. They became followers um, in what was called at that time the way. Um, I like that term, actually. Um, but there were also a lot of opposition. If you read Acts 17, we're not going to take the time to look at it this morning. But... Um, the Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they got very hostile. In fact, they were looking for Paul and his 
and, and the people that were with him and they were looking to drag uh, Paul before the magistrates, they couldn't find him. They went to the house of a guy named Jason. There's not a whole lot said about Jason, but, uh, but the fact that he got dragged before the magistrate and he had to bribe his way out of, out of basically that's what it tells us in the scripture. They, he had to pay a large sum of money and they let him go. Um, Paul and his, his group, uh, Paul, and, um, Paul and, and the group that he was with, they, they, um, it was Silas, um, they slip out and they go to Berea. And, and they begin teaching in Berea. Well, the Jews of Thessalonica who did not believe in the Messiah, follow me? They followed Paul to Berea and raised all kinds of ruckus and caused all kinds of problems for Paul there. So this was a church that was under a lot of persecution. This was a church that lived in a city whose cultural understanding and worldview was anti-Christian. There's no other way really to say it. They were, they were living in an anti-Christian culture, an anti-Christian society. Kind of like today. And, and so he wants to go, Paul wants to go and to be with them and, and to encourage them um, and to continue to teach them. He was only with them for, uh, like I said, three weeks. And it, obviously he was very endeared to them. For whatever happened in that three weeks, uh, he had a really uh, uh, large heart for the people of Thessalonica. Uh, and he wanted to, to return and, and to be able to teach them even more fully the things of God and, and to watch them to grow in their faith. And that's, that's part of what this letter is about. Uh, it, this letter, as you well know, uh, has the common theme in it of the return of Jesus Christ as well. And he's, he's wanting them to hold their life, their Christianity, their lifestyle, their worldview in the context that the Messiah is going to come a second time. Now that is exactly what Advent really is all about. Advent celebrates the first coming of Jesus, but it looks at the first coming in view of the fact that Jesus will return one day. So the whole, and if you think about some of these Christian hymns, right? Um, Joy to the world, for example. That's about a second coming. O come, O come, Emmanuel. That's about his second coming. Do they fit for the first coming? Yes. God has a way of doing things. I was thinking about, I woke up early this morning and couldn't back to sleep. But anyway, I was thinking about how, how interesting it is that, that God has a way of doing things uh, more than once. I, I referred to them before as near and far fulfillments of prophecy and, and that the, the near fulfillment of a prophecy will be a picture or a type of, of uh, that second fulfillment. And the problem with the Jews, and Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus being the Messiah was a stumbling block to them because they read the Old Testament prophecies that prophesied about Jesus' second coming and mistook them for Jesus' first coming. And so he became a stumbling block to them. He is a stumbling block to many Jews today. And, and what we have here is that, that in Thessalonica, Paul sends Timothy. He sends him back. They couldn't go themselves, so he sends Timothy and, and, and to, to go and encourage the church there. Uh, and then Timothy comes back to Paul, and he brings a good report. He brings a good report that the Thessalonians who have received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are, are still in the faith. They're still hanging in there. They're still doing well. And, and so Paul really begins in verse 9, he begins with a prayer where, where he, he says, uh, for what thanks uh, can I give? What thanks can I give um, to God for you? For all the joy which we rejoice for your sake because before our God. Because he goes on to say to them that night and day he's been praying for them. Night and day. Now that could be a reference to um, that could be a reference to the morning and evening prayer time. Remember, Paul did not cast out all his Jewish practices. And it could be the, mor the morning and the evening prayer um, that the Psalms speak about quite often, actually. But he, he, is, he prays for them and, and remembers them in prayer um, that he may see their faith, see their face. He wanted to go visit and to be able to perfect what is lacking in their faith. Now that word perfect or perfect, it does not mean to be completely perfect. That is not what he's talking about here. This word would be, and, and some of the other translations have this word, uh, they translate this word from the Greek instead of perfect, they translate it complete. That your faith would be complete. Now, I thought about this. Is your faith complete? It's an interesting question, I think. Is our faith complete? I don't know that we ever fully get there, and I'm kind of trying to let us all off the hook, but in reality, Paul's prayer that their faith would be complete that tells me that, that somehow it's attainable. But I, I, I think it's something that we, we, we need to consider. Are we done growing in the faith? <laughs> Some of you are like, of course not. I, but, but and, and I think we all believe this, that we're not done growing in the faith. I remember... I shouldn't use this illustration, and, but I'm going to anyway. I had to go see an internal med doctor a couple, several, five years ago or so. Anyway, I had some issues. And anyway, 
Um, and he was telling me, he goes, yeah, you probably could lose, lose a few pounds, right? I'm like, yeah, you're right. And I said, yeah, I, I think I need to lose weight. He goes, well, do you have a plan? I wanted to say no, but I bet you do. This guy didn't have an ounce of fat on him, by the way. But he made a very good point. He made a very good point. If you don't plan to do something, you're probably not going to get there. If you don't plan and make it a part of, a, part of your spiritual goal to have a completion of your faith, you probably won't get there. These things don't happen all in, all in, in, and by themselves. Now, are they a work of the Holy Spirit that does these things in us? Yes, they are. But the reality is, and, and uh, is that we have to subject ourselves, or submit ourselves, or avail ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit when He is beginning to do those works on us. And we know when He's working, don't we? Especially when He's wanting us to do something or calling us to do something that we really don't want to do, right? And He He. He's calling us to actually live like we believed at times that we really don't want to live like we believe. And, and that, those are the sanctifying moments, guys. You know, as I've, I've said for years, it, it, it's not how high you jump on Sunday. Of course, we're not Pentecostal, but anyway. It's, it's not how high you, you jump on Sunday. It's how straight you walk during the week. And that's not easy. Because I, I think a lot of us, and I'm not necessarily speaking of any of you particularly, but I think a lot of us, a lot of us Christians would rather jump really high on Sunday and leave the rest of the week to chance. You don't grow that way. It's like me eating a big Thanksgiving dinner, which I kind of did, and decide, okay, after the new year, I'm going to go on a diet. Well, what's your diet going to be? I don't know. I'll just maybe eat a little less. You know, I'm probably not going to lose any weight. But he expresses this gratitude in verse 9 for their growth. In other words, he, he, he's invested his life in, in them for just those three weeks, but he spent the nights and the days, day in and day out, praying for them, and he's expressing his gratitude. We talked about that last week before Thanksgiving. Here we are the Sunday after Thanksgiving. But how important it is to live a life of gratitude. How important it is to live that life of gratitude. And we, I read it to you earlier this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When, after he had break, broken bread and did what? Given thanks. I find that fascinating that that's put in there, that Paul writes that. He's describing the Last Supper, right? And, 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 and that he 
part of the narrative he wanted to include that Jesus, when he broke the bread, he also gave thanks. That's setting a pattern for us. And it's more than just um, praying before you meal. I hope you give thanks before you eat. I do. I, I, and if you don't, let me encourage you to, just to do it, to try it. But to, to live a life of gratitude. Uh, and, and, and so that Paul says, I want to I be with you so that you would be complete in your faith so that you would not be lacking. In other words, he, he's praying that their faith might become uh, more mature. And he's longing to see them again and to bring them to this place of, of spiritual maturity. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Again, part of the, the, the process, part of the submission or availing yourself in the form of spiritual disciplines involves, I believe, wraps itself around and involves the word of God and in incorporating the word of God into our lives. What works for me, and it may or may not work for you, but I, I, I go with smaller pieces. I don't, I, don't, I don't even read a whole chapter. Sometimes I'll read a verse and I'm done, and I'll think about it for a while. But, 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 but to, to keep God's word in front of you in some way, some shape, some form. You know, and, and sometimes my, uh, in, in a nightly prayer, I'll just read a psalm. You know, th- th- I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm not wanting to lay a trip on any of y'all, Okay. You know, uh, Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is so hard and difficult you can barely pick it up, right? He said, my burden is light. So he's not looking for you to jump through a bunch of hoops and do a bunch of spiritual gymnastics in order to grow in your faith. He's, he, all he wants us to do is to be available to him. He'll do the work. True spiritual growth is a work of the Holy Spirit anyway. I think sometimes we forget that. But he wanted to be with them so he could instruct them more. So that their faith would be complete. And then he goes on to say, um, just read verse 11. Now, now, again, he's saying a prayer here. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. In other words, Lord, give us an opportunity to go back to Thessalonica. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people. Just as we also do for you. See, he's, and personally, I think this causes, uh, this requires great humility because Paul is setting himself up as an example to them, just as we also do for you. And he's setting himself up as an example. Are you an example to someone else? Of course you are. And do you allow others to be examples to you? Do you speak into someone's life? Do you allow others to speak into your life? 
It's not always an easy thing to do, is it? But people are watching. Just like earlier, someone said to me, oh, we put those up there so you could read the Apostles' Creed this morning if you would like to. I thought, you know, listen to that. Hear that. The Apostles' Creed is our heritage. That's the elevator speech. You remember I told you about the elevator speech? The, the time it takes for you to get to the bottom floor, to the top floor in an elevator. That's our elevator speech of our faith. It's a declaration of what we believe. It's based on the word of God. It's one of the first, not the, but one of the first statements of faith that was written in the Christian church. And it's very encompassing. And he, he prays that their, that, that, that their love may abound. The New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, it says that instead of their love abounding, which is uh, we have in the New King James, it uses the word overflow. That your love might overflow. I looked it up, and, and this, this word in the Greek refers to this, uh, this idea of a person receiving something in great abundance. A person who receives something in great abundance. I, I even think that, that our, our love for God, our love for others, is a gift from God. And I, I, I think at times that we, we mistake Biblical love from Hollywood love. You know that, which I think is really strange because how many actors and actresses have been married umpteen million times, you know? I couldn't resist, I'm sorry. So the world doesn't understand love. They really don't. And, th and that, Love sometimes really requires sacrifice. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do to a person is sometimes the most difficult thing that you can do. And it costs you something. And it's very hard at times to love people whole different group of people but I remember years ago when we were first here I had a saying that just when you get this just when you've extracted enough grace out of me there you go and try to get some more because none of you were here then right I can say that now but he's praying that their love would abound now I find this interesting the connection here between an overflow of love for one another for all people and then it says, so that, verse 13, that your love might abound, that your love may overflow for each other and all people, which I find difficult because I like the each other part. I'm not always so happy with the all people part. <laughs> so if you have some white out, no, I'm kidding. So that's when it makes it difficult. Because it's easy to love people who are lovable, isn't it? 
But it is not easy to love people who are not lovable. And that's when you really know, that, that's when you need the, the, God's power, the Holy Spirit's power to give you that ability to love someone when, when you have no reason to love them other than what God has declared in his word. But the connection for that, that you would increase and overflow in your love, it says, so that. That is a very important phrase. Two words translated by one word in the Greek. The Greek word is ice. I, excuse me, E-I-S. Actually, it's not, well, anyway. Um, but E-I-S works if you want to spell it in English. Because this word, ice, is a marker of intent, a marker of intention. And it is often, when it's, it's in the text, it's often with, with, uh, often with, an, with an implication of an expected result. In other words, if you love each other and your love overflows for each other and everyone else, the expected result is verse 13. That's what he's saying here. Follow me on this? All right. So we have a, or you could even replace it instead of so that it could be for the purpose of. That would be a, a good translation of this word as well, for the purpose of or in order to. And it's a call to holiness. So that he, now that is a reference to the Lord. It's not a reference to Paul. It's not a reference to anyone else. It's a reference to the Lord. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. In other words, if your love for each other and for all people overflows, what will result from that will be that the Lord will establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and the Father at the coming of our Lord with all his saints. I find that to be fascinating. Because what this told me, as I've already said to you, that, that our sanctification, our growth, our perfection, our completeness in Christ happens when we submit, when we avail ourselves, when we show up. But what that looks like where the rubber meets the road in our lives is that we avail ourselves, we submit to his lordship, we show up with a spirit and with a heart of love for each other and for others. And, and <sighs> too many Christians are worried about too many other things. Go to Facebook. Second thought, don't. Um, 
Too many Christians, though, are worried about too many other things. Rather than being complete in the love of God that will establish our hearts as blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I sometimes think we have the wrong perspective of the second coming. And my mind, I'm seeing the pictures in my mind. I think it was called The Great Escape. And that it was a World War II movie where they escaped from a German camp and somebody rode a motorcycle over the fence. You know, I can't remember what it is. Late 60s. Steve McQueen. Okay. Bill, can you find that clip? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. The other Bill. Well, Bill, you, you're, anyway. The great escape. I think we think of the second coming as the great escape. And by the way, I believe that the second coming that is Jesus, that Paul is talking about here in verse 13 is the second coming. When Jesus comes back, when he appears. When he comes and he rules and he reigns. John says in one of his letters that he who has his hope in him, hope in him, that is this hope of the second coming, purifies himself even as he is pure. Are we, are we more focused on the second coming as being this great escape? Or, or do we want to be faithful servants? Look at Matthew 24, which is an end time chapter, the Olivet Discourse, where, where Jesus talks about the faithful servants who are anticipating his coming. Therefore, they want to be found faithful because he is coming back. And it said that the evil servants who did not believe he was coming back soon, they began to beat their fellow servants. It's the last latter part of Matthew 24 due to time. I'm not going to take and, and, and look at it this morning. But how do we hold the idea of the second coming of Christ in context? I think it's an, that's a real important question. Because I also think that, 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 that this is an incredible encouragement from Paul in this little passage, but it's also, it's also a, um, it serves as a, as a sober warning. When the Lord returns. And I, 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 I've got a devotional book I'm reading that's taking me, us, taking me through Advent every day. It, it, it talks about Christ's second coming where, where, you know, the sound of the trumpet and the flashing of the lightning that, and, and all the different descriptions that are given to us in the New Testament that describe 
Uh, and some of them could be real, actual. Some of them could be metaphor. I don't know. I don't even, even care at this point. But the, the, the point that the scriptures make is that when he comes, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be violent. It's going to be right here in our face. It won't be gradual. It'll be here. And then the world has to deal with that reality. We want to be found faithful at his coming. And this has been the expectation of the church for almost 2,000 years. It was given to us in the first century through the New Testament and through a lot of Paul's writings. It, we even we looked at it this morning again. First Corinthians 13, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. You see why the church calendar begins with Advent, with the expectation of the coming of the Lord. And that this is how we are to live throughout our year and then as this next year unwinds up and we go into another church year you do it all over again because it is the expectation that the Lord has given his church we see it in Acts the same Jesus who you've seen uh, rise up will come again in like manner This idea of being established and being blameless. This word blameless means to be free from fault or defect. Remember I asked earlier about is your faith complete? So we are called to be blameless. That is to be free from fault or defect. Now, a couple of verses real quick and I'm finished. This idea of being blameless does not mean that you're without sin, but, but it, it, it is this idea of being faultless. In, in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, a description of the mother and father of John the Baptist, Zacharias and Elizabeth, right? It says they were both righteous before God, walking in all commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Were they without sin? No. But I think that Zacharias and Elizabeth understood what John, not John the Baptist, but another John, John the Apostle wrote when he said, if you confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, it says that you may become blameless and harmless. In other words, that you become fault, faultless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul writing to the Philippians, was he not foreseeing 2021, 2022? He sure was. 
talking about us, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. But remember, we're, that our love would what? That our love would increase and overflow for one another and for all people? Really? Yeah. Including the crooked, crooked and perverse people who are part of the crooked and perverse generation. Because when we love like that, then we have availed ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit who can then establish our hearts to be blameless in holiness. And so therefore, we will not be ashamed at his coming. This could be today. It could be today. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, is, that verse is talking about the second coming. Glorious appearing. It's talking about him being and returning and coming to earth. That's our blessed hope, is his return, is his coming to right the wrongs. Why do the nations rage? Psalm 2 asks. It goes on to say the Lord will hold them, and he laughs, and he holds them in derision. In other words, he holds them in confusion. So what I'm seeing here as I look at this sense of expectation of the second coming is that in the meantime, my job is to love people. Now, I'd rather it be something else sometimes, okay? But my job is to love people. And when I love people, the Lord God will establish our hearts, blameless and holiness, before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That is an incredible, incredible, incredible calling, looking toward an incredible, incredible, incredible future. Amen.